There are no shortcuts to rescue experience because there is no single operational plan for the different incidents you may face. More than anything else, a strong rescue operation rests on the experience of his officers and firefighters and the ability to adapt and adjust each operation to reach a safe and successful conclusion. The voice you just heard belongs to FDNY Deputy Chief Raymond Downey. In this recording, Downey is imparting some of his knowledge as it relates to rescue operational planning. As one of the FDNY's most decorated fire officers and a true department icon with legendary and monumental accomplishments to boast, his expertise was deeply revered. Rule number one, there are no hard and fast rules. Rescue isn't like a pump operation. You don't supply so much pressure to your 15, 16 tip to produce X gallons per minute. It's more art than science. Chief Downey's extraordinary 39-year career with the FDNY was built upon success after success and rescue after rescue. While he was held in high regard by members of the department and emergency response agencies worldwide, he led a humble life extremely devoted to the mission and the members of the department. On the morning of September 11, 2001, Chief Downey was the commanding officer of FDNY Special Operations Command, placing him in harm's way while helping others escape from the fire and collapse scene of the World Trade Center. There are thousands of pieces of information that trigger hundreds of actions by scores of rescue team members who are all taking their orders from you. Chief Downey was one of the 343 members of the FDNY who made the supreme sacrifice on 9-11 and left behind a legacy that continues to profoundly shape the department's special operations capability set, as well as other fire departments across the country. Chief Downey's leadership, strategic vision, and his devout Catholic faith, love for his family, the FDNY, and competitive sport continue to inspire fire officers, military leaders, coaches, and citizens today. You're listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode and the one to follow, I'm honored to help share the story of Deputy Chief Ray Downey's devotion to his family, his faith, and his beloved FDNY, compliments of the insight of his wife of 41 years, his sons, and his former firefighters who were inspired and influenced by his leadership, service, and courage. Ray Downey's remarkable story begins with the seminal tragedy of losing his father early in life. He grew up uh, at a young age, at nine years old, his father died, and he was the youngest of five. So uh, he had a difficult time growing up here in Queens and Woodside. That's Joe, one of Chief Downey's sons. Looking back on his childhood today, Joe has a deeper appreciation for his father's commitment to service and his leadership. You know, we think about that being a good leader growing up without a dad. You know, we were fortunate we had him and we looked up to somebody like that and, and saw what a leader he could be. 
And him growing up without that, I believe the Marine Corps helped with that aspect of leadership. Not that he wasn't a good leader growing up, but it's almost hard. If you got nobody to model yourself after, you got to find somebody that you want to try to emulate. After graduating from LaSalle High School on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Ray Downey enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. He served with 2nd Battalion, 10th Marines from 1956 to 1959. Upon his discharge from the Marines, Ray Downey worked at a bank where he met the love of his life, Rosalie. She too noted Downey's ability to overcome adversity and connect with others, even in challenging situations. He was the first Irishman in the family, so that was tough, you know, because my father first, when he heard, he went, he's Irish, because he had a little accent, my father, which meant Irish. And I said, yes, Dad, but you'll love him. And he did, you know, and he worked with my father during the holidays because my father had a store and he always sold Christmas trees outside. And he helped my father and my father had an accent. My father would tell him how to say what the price was in Italian. It was very funny, you know, to see an Irishman talking Italian. <laughs> but they got along well. The couple wed in April of 1960 and over the course of their marriage, they raised five children, Raymond Jr., Joe, Chuck, Marie, and Kathy. Their home life was modest and the days were hectic, but Rosalie knew from the time they met that Ray Downey was the man she wanted to build a life with. How I knew it's because he was, he was really very lovable and he got along with my family so well. And it seemed like they all liked him as much as I did, you know, actually I loved him. And, you know, it was just, he was everything that I was looking for. He had all the qualities of life that I wanted. I mean, he wasn't a rich man, but he was different, you know? It was like, he was kind and honest and loyal. And he had a lot of friends. He got along with my friends, which means a lot too. And my family, and I think that's what like within two years, it was like I didn't really want anybody else but him. Prior to following in their father's footsteps and becoming FDNY firefighters, Ray Downey's sons, Joe and Chuck, knew very little of their father's exploits as a lieutenant in Harlem's fire factory and as a company commander in Brooklyn's Squad Company 1 and Rescue Company 2. The relationship that the five Downey children had with their father early in life primarily revolved around competitive sports and academics. Joe can recall the emphasis that his father put on these areas. Whatever we were going to attempt, he wanted us to give 100% or more at that and would support it, whether it was academics, athletics. He wanted to make sure that we gave it all. And uh, he wasn't a loving person with hugs and kisses, but he showed it in different ways. Uh, Mom was the loving person with hugs and kisses, but dad was always there supporting. He did everything with the kids. They were at softball, he'd be there. If they were at a baseball, he'd be there. And then my kids were very good wrestlers and he would take mutuals, whatever he could do to be there. He never missed a game. And he was a coach for a baseball team when they were on it. He helped with the wrestling, you know, he would keep scores. Uh, he traveled with them when I couldn't go because I had smaller ones home. Uh, he was with them. He was like, you know, really their best friend, but 
they listened to him. He was, you know, he was really strict with them. He never hit them, but they had this respect for him no matter what. Younger brother Chuck echoes Joe's sentiments about the role their father's tough upbringing had in shaping his philosophies on life and leadership. They also share newfound admiration for their father's athleticism, love of team sports, and how he raised them. Probably two things that stand out as a child in the memories of my father. Sports and discipline. I was a discipline problem up until about 11th grade. I was a real, you know, I had a lot of issues in school. So, I mean, if I look my younger days, I was definitely, you know, scared of him. That Marine, real tough, strict, never hit us. I think we always wished he would hit us because, you know, that the strictness and the discipline and the eyes and the shake of the disappointment in the head hurt more. I think a punch would have been better. and, And I think this goes back to, like, my wife being a psychologist and making me understand my father better than when I grew up. So the fact that he lost his father at a very young age, his older siblings, half of them were out of house. His next older sibling was like five years older than him. And then he went into the Marine Corps and that was like his family. So I didn't really know much about this until my wife and years later. But, you know, looking back and reflecting back on how he had to be a father and what he knew that that's when I actually respected him so much more because I said, probably if I didn't have him, I don't know, maybe I'd be locked up. I'd be, you know, I was, I had a lot of issues um, discipline wise. He loved competition. He was on the fire department hockey team. He also was playing hockey at 63 in a, uh, in a hockey league here for fire and police. He ran marathons. We didn't realize until he had passed what a great athlete he was. So when we were growing up, he pushed us for athletics. He wanted us to compete. He wanted to make sure that we had something to compete with in athletics. And we did. We, we were in multiple sports growing up, from uh, baseball to uh, football to hockey, roller and ice. Uh, my sisters were gymnastics, volleyball, basketball. So we were always doing something to compete. And he said, if, you, if you're working at a sport, especially during the summertime, and you're traveling for it, doing extra work, then you don't have to work. You know, we'll help you out until college. And then when college came, uh, you're getting a job. But it, it was good at the time. So he would take us all over the country if we were wrestling to compete there and follow us. And with our the, the fire department job, he was able to find the time to do that. Despite Chuck's discipline issues in his younger years, he and his father continued to connect through their shared love of competition. Ray Downey used sport to communicate many of life's lessons. What he imparted in subtle ways made a lasting impression on Chuck. I, I honestly think he kept me in line and I, I didn't go off the wrong path, ironically enough, right, from a disciplinarian. But the sports, I, you know, I got, I, I got one story. I was coming home from wrestling practice. It was like middle school. And he's like, what are you doing home? You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to the Islander game tonight. Got tickets. So I want to do my homework. You know, I was probably BSing him. He's like, no, you gave a commitment. You joined that team. You don't miss any practices. You know, and that's like seventh grade. And I thought by me saying, ah, I'll do my homework. But that stuck with me to this day. Like, because I, I passed that on to my kids. You make a commitment. You sign up for something. You join. You don't miss it. So little things like that, I think some of the stuff he laid down from a foundation point, 
even though you know my discipline issues younger, I definitely retained some of them and, and use them to this day, obviously. But we really connected on sports. Like he was just such a, uh, yeah, I was like the quarterback in uh, ninth grade. And I'll never forget it because one of the coaches was who was an ex-pro was a strictly defensive guy. And there was some emergency and the other coach, two coaches at the time, school ball, not, not youth ball, school ball, had to leave. And I just remember my father walking down the stands and going on the sideline. And the next thing I know, He's calling the plays. I swear to God. I'm like, it's like, you know, like he just had that knack with sports and me to connect. And it was a lot of good stories like that. I had one bad one. Ninth or 10th grade baseball. I didn't get along with a teacher. Same. We had a baseball game that day, school ball. That day, I I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to get out early. And, and she turned around. I said, just, just let me go to principal's. You know, I was like a punk. She, she goes, no, Mr. Down, you're going to stay in this class. And I, I picked up a staple gun and I threw it at her while she was writing on the board right next to her head. I wasn't going to hit her. I just wanted to scare it. And then she lost it. So I'm telling this story. We had a game that afternoon. And it's like a berm. And the baseball diamond was below the berm. And we're at the top of the berm. And I'm like holding court. I'll never forget it. Because my friends still talk about this story. And I'm holding court about me being a punk. And, you know, you know at that age, whatever ninth, 10th grade, 15 years old. And all my friends are looking at me and they're cracking up and then all of a sudden they just all go blank. And I'm telling the story and then one of them goes like, it points. It's like pointed behind you and as I turn around, he's just coming, I swear to God. <laughs> it was like Clint Eastwood and we joke about it. My friends even joke about it. It was like Clint Eastwood just marching to the field. And I always, it, sports was always my way out of getting, you know, that was my free pass getting out of trouble, you know, every how I performed. And I turn around. Guys to this day say, it was like Clint Eastwood coming over the horizon. And he, you know, he called me over there. He started, you know, obviously squaring me straight, put me straight. But, um, yeah, I think about that type of stuff with my father. Some, you know, good and bad, but I think he held me together that I didn't go off the wrong path. Vacations were also an essential aspect of home life for the Downies. Even with the family's modest financial means on a blue-collar civil servant's budget, Ray, Rosalie, and their five kids made lifelong memories just spending time together, making the best of what they had. The vacations were so memorable, all of them, and I don't think we ever stayed in a, a, a two-star, I mean... A, uh, a very nice hotel. It was always uh, bar to camper from somebody in the firehouse, and we'll go up to the Catskills. I, I'm trying to think. I think it was always borrowing something to just do it, because the fireman didn't make a lot of money back then. But he always found time to do family stuff. We always did family stuff, whether it was just going out east and rented a house for two days. We'd do that. Camper and the camping. Down in Jersey, we rented at Seaside Heights. Where we were seven in a room, you know, we only got one room. Everybody had to sleep together, or you just, wherever you landed, you slept. Right. We never had two rooms. In addition to encouraging his children to actively compete in numerous athletic endeavors, Ray Downey also encouraged them to attend college after high school. He was adamant that each child should obtain a college education. In an attempt to win his father's favor, Chuck somewhat comically recalls mistakenly believing that his father might accept his enlistment in the Marine Corps 
as a substitute for college. So I went to Marine Recruit. And once again, it was all about how I would connect with my father, you know, reflecting back now. At the time, I didn't know. I was just wanted to make him happy. But it was really probably more deeper. So I came home after wrestling practice. My head is shaved from wrestling season. But I had a red Marine shirt from the recruiter. They gave you... And I said, I'm joining the Marines. I, and I thought he was going to put his arm around me and everything. And he gave me the dirtiest look. And he goes, is, it was simple. He goes, no, you're not. I did that. You're going to college. And I was just like, I didn't know what to, I wasn't going to say, oh, no, I'm not. I'm going to, you know, it, it wasn't that type of relationship. I was just like, all right, I guess I'm going to college. I, I thought this was like, hey, that a boy. But he had a tough life growing up, you know. Him seeing, like with my children right now, right? My girls, I, I want them to academically go further than I went academically, right? We want our kids to be in a better position to help themselves out in the future. And that Marine story is classic because I still have the photo of the Marine shirt and I thought he was going to be so proud of me. That's 11th grade, so now I'm like, I'm going to college because, you know, it's different now. I see my, my girls, they know about colleges and rankings and majors. Back then, it wasn't the same in my family household, right? Because neither of my parents have a college degree at that time. And it was just like, you know, Joe was the first one in the family to get a college degree. I think he was extremely proud to be part of the Marine Corps. But he never pushed it on us. He said, you're going to college. Uh, you don't have a choice. There, there was no choice there. And I think at the time, because we were doing pretty well in sports, that that was our direction. But even if we said, what about the military? He's like, no. You go to college, then we'll talk about it after it. So it's fortunate. We all, my brothers and my sisters, all five of us graduated college. And that's kind of odd sometimes in a family. My sister that's younger than me because I'm the oldest. She's the next one. She never finished college. And my dad always told her, I want you to finish. You should get your degree. And she was successful. She was in the mortgage business and doing well. She's a smart woman. And then uh, after he died, she's like, I'm going back to college. And she became a teacher, very, very good at it. She teaches uh, special needs kids. And uh, I guess Marie was probably pushing 50 or so when she got her degree and is teaching now, as well as my younger sister. You know, one thing I think our parents gave to us is uh, you need to give back. Ray Downey entered the ranks of the New York City Fire Department in April of 1962, joining his brothers Tom and Jean, who were also on the job. According to Rosalie, Ray loved the FDNY from day one. That was the happiest day of his life, you know. He was, well, I used to tell him he was, he loved the Marines first, then he loved the fire department. Then I had a son. I said, I'm like fourth on that line. But, you know, we always laughed about it. Although he didn't share much about the fire department, his position and influence, or provide his sons much in the way of exposure to the job during their grade school and college years, Ray Downey encouraged Joe and Chuck to take the FDNY firefighters exam. It was never on my radar being a fireman. I didn't know the excitement and everything that he accomplished, so there was no draw there. We were never in the volunteers. Um, we went to the firehouse for the Christmas parties. And it looked like fun running around on the rigs and stuff. But other than that, we did not know much about what he did in the fire department. So I was a sophomore in college, and he said, the fire department test is coming. Why don't you take it? I'm like, I don't know. I'm getting my degree. You think I should take it? He's like, take it. I'm like, all right. So I get you the vest. At the time, I lived in the towers at Hofstra. He said, just run up and down the towers a couple times. A couple times a week, run up and down. I said, all right. And 
and uh, I was wrestling, so it wasn't much to get a workout. I didn't put the vest on and going up and down the towers a few times. And that, that physical was a tough physical. You had to be in decent shape to pass that physical. I, I got 100, and then I did my next two years of college, it felt like. I think it was two years. And I graduated in December 84. It took me four and a half years. Got a little lax at the end there. <laughs> and then after that, I, I, I said, I don't know if I want to sit behind a desk or do the business stuff that I was looking at. I said, you know what? You know, what about that fire department test? What are you looking at? He's like, you know what? You're on the top of the list there, and uh, it could be soon. And it wound up being maybe a month later, February of 85, I got appointed. Not knowing what to expect, but I, I took an opportunity and said, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot because I don't have anything right now. I don't have a job, and I'm not sure really exactly what I want to do. So I'll give the fire department a shot. Like Joe, Chuck didn't intend to become a New York City firefighter either, but when the NFL didn't pan out, which he modestly explains, he ended up discovering his calling in life. I was a junior at Stony Brook. The season had just ended. It was December 12, 1987, and my buddy was in the Division Three championships, Wagner against Dayton, and that was the day I took the firefighter written test, 1987, December 12th. Uh, he had always said, just take it as a backup, take it as a backup. So then, you know, by the time I graduated in 88, I got cut by the Eagles. I went back to Stony Brook as a grad assistant to work on my master's. And then I finished with that when I started getting, I got called for the fire department. I was like, at the time, I was really thinking about coaching. The contacts of Stony Brook had me going to the Division One program to be, you know, sort of at the bottom of the food chain. And... I was like, you know, Joe loved the job. You know, my father didn't talk about it. It wasn't like telling stories like some other guys. He didn't tell any stories. He didn't give anything up. He never talked about the fire department. But Joe told me about it. He's like, it's great. You'll love it. You know, it's like sports. There's teamwork. You know, there's a lot of camaraderie. I love what I'm doing. So I, I coached at the collegiate level, and then I went for my investigation, and I, t I took it. And thank God. <laughs> thank God I took it. I can't imagine. I mean, I love. I still love coach. I still coach to this day. But it is. It's. It's. It's bizarre how my father said, "Take it as a backup," and I can't imagine doing anything else. In 1985, Joe Downey joined his father as a member of the FDNY. His father ensured that Joe was assigned to a neighborhood Brooklyn engine company, where he would work for a seasoned company commander with an excellent reputation. Joe didn't yet comprehend the extent to which his father was a revered leader, but this realization came quickly. At the time, Captain Downey offered little in the way of verbal guidance and counsel to his son, though he did ensure that Joe had a reliable means of transportation to his Brooklyn firehouse, a ride compliments of his chauffeur. Most of it was keep your mouth shut. Listen a lot. Listen to what people have to say and learn. And I, I think myself and even... Chuck, he could speak for himself. That we, we weren't that type that because our dad was on, that we were entitled. We didn't even know that he was that well-known. So when I got on, I went to 227, which was right down the block from him when they moved to Bergen Street. And we used to carpool together. You know, who goes to work on the fire department with your father? You know, but we lived together. I still was living at home at the time. And uh, his chauffeur would pick us up. And the ride was fantastic. It, between the two of them, mostly his chauffeur, John Barbagallo, who was just an unbelievable fireman and, and a, just a great guy who loved the job. 
Every day you get in the car. Hey, Joe, who told you about this job? What a great job, right? Everything was so positive about it. So I, I got assigned to 227 engine after probie school. And that was down the block from Rescue 2 at the time. And I had the opportunity in the beginning to work with him at Fires. You know, not many sons get to work with their dads in, in the fire department at Fires together. They're on a the job together, but we happen to be going. So I think one of my first jobs was uh, a second alarm. I don't know if it was on Nostrand Avenue, it was a paint store. But I remember above, you know, I fell to a floor to my waist, nothing serious, but I remember falling through and I just get myself out. It wasn't like I was in fire or anything. It wasn't serious, but I did fall in. So we're driving home and I mentioned that. I said, that fire we were at, I uh, I kind of went in a hole, you know, and I went up to my my waist, but I was able, I didn't get burnt or anything. There was no fire. He's like, oh, we saw legs coming down on us, you know, and he was, he, he was right underneath me. I was like, that wouldn't have been good as a probie, you know, falling on my father going through the hole. But uh, that, that was a funny story. But we've also had stories where we were in some good fires together. And one of my first nozzle jobs, I had him and Captain Higgins, who was from the Higgins family and one of, my, one of the best engine captains on the job at the time. And I believe that's why I went to 227 because my dad wanted me to learn a job from the best. And one thing that he said and how he followed through was that you start the job in an engine company. Learn the job. That's where the, the job is. The engine company first. You know, figure out how to put a fire out. And when a fire goes out, how that helps the whole operation. So myself, Chug, anybody that we knew, family, everybody started in an engine in Brooklyn just about and learned a job, traditional engine work in Brooklyn, which I think I still would do that. If my kids get on a job, they'll probably go into an engine company to learn a job. But that was his way to do things. And um, having Captain Higgins and my dad on the same, you know, going into a, a decent like brownstone job, going up there and fire everywhere, not having seen that before, but hearing their calm voices directing us and what to do, kind of calmed me down, you know, being a new guy and not knowing what to expect, that I, I feel pretty safe. Dad's right there. I got one of the best captain bosses uh, on the job next to me. Uh, so we've had, we had a couple of jobs together. Chuck joined his brother Joe as a firefighter in Brooklyn in 1990. Chuck recalls that he received a bit more in the way of guidance than Joe did as a probationary firefighter. Guidance that he recently communicated to graduates of the FDNY's most recent fire academy class, infused with some humor about the rocky relationship he had with his dad as a kid. Last week when our probies graduated from the academy on August 9th, I spoke to them a day or two before they graduated. And I actually took out a sheet of paper that my father wrote out on a yellow legal pad. And it was labeled, you know, basically what probies should do. And it was one through 16. And I had a couple examples on the bottom, how to use the phone, who to call, terminology. But it was one through 16. So I actually, after 9-11, I had it laminated because I had it taped in my locker at 235. So every time I came in, I would just read off all 16. They were basic, but it was like reminders of really what you should be doing. You know, simple stuff from checking the rig to stepping up, making sure that you know, the kitchen sink is done, making sure, yes, sir, that officers, you know, never giving up, staying low at fires, never get off your, the rig with a mask, without a mask on. Like, you know, 1 through 16, I, I read it to the probies a couple of weeks ago, and it, it, it kind of, it's the first time I ever read it. 
to anyone else. You know, I, I, I always look at it now. I keep it on my desk and I keep it off to the side. Out of respect to him as a reminder, as honoring him. So those words of wisdom were great because now my father, I, I, made, I make jokes at this all the time. I was like, now my father talks to me, right? <laughs> he didn't talk to me for 24 years. Now I actually get to talk to my father after 24 years. So I joke about that. As a new firefighter in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Chuck found himself subjected to the same rite of passage that his brother Joe enjoyed a few years earlier. I was really lucky for about 17 months or so. I drove in with him and John Babagal. And I didn't know at the time. I'm just, you know, asking things. They're telling me things. But they weren't telling stories. It was all tactical information. It wasn't you know, some of the stuff, some of the fluff that you hear nowadays in uncertain podcasts. It was all really concrete information, tactically, what you should be thinking, really building construction, driving in, pointing out buildings. I mean, at the time, I'm a probie, I'm brand new. You know, you, you could read and retain certain amounts of information, but then, you know, when you relate it to real life or experiences, you know, and make the connection. Once again, I didn't realize how lucky I was with John Babagallo. As young firefighters in Brooklyn, both Joe and Chuck quickly came to appreciate their father's capabilities as a fire officer and the impact that he made at fires. Joe can vividly recall a fire he responded to in the winter of 1990, where he recognized that his father was not only tactically competent, but also extremely tough and possessed exceptional instincts. There were a bunch of frames going that were vacant. At the end of Nostrand, it turns into Lee and Flushing. We went there on the second, maybe, but it would wind up being like a fourth. And I'll never forget, because Rescue 2, it was a bunch of frames, four-story frames or so, pumping out of one of them really bad, pumping out his exposure two pretty good, and then you saw some light, lighter smoke out of three. But I remember his head popping out when I was standing you know, near the command post we were waiting for. And, you know, I'm young. I'm 24 years old, and I'm like, that's my father. And then he disappears. And, you know, back then we all didn't have a radio, so I didn't have a radio on, so you're hanging out near the officer to try to listen up. And then he pops out again, and then I think it was Pete Martin popped out. There was a few guys that I'm like, and I'm saying to myself, what are these guys doing? You know, like, and I'm thinking, like, he's going to die in there. Because I didn't know much about fire other than you know don't don't forget we didn't have youtube you know it was like yeah we had you know heat and rescue 911 you know all those little videos that you were able to see here and there but it wasn't like the exposure to that type of fire and really you know what i can evaluate and calculate and what i know now compared to back then i was like oh my god what's he doing he's gonna die in there like he's just popping up on the third floor with smoke pumping out below him and it's funny because when he did come out of the building, don't forget, I, I didn't get to talk to him right away the next day. You know, he, and it was just his classic humility, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, it was pretty good up there. But what I remember about my father with the fires that I went to him, he never wore his face piece. He always had his mask on. And as I became on the job and we spoke more, he would talk about taking hits, you know, like so. Because you always heard him talking. The first time I actually took my face piece off was probably months later. It was like a borderline box, 235, 214, 111, rescue two. It was a good job. And I had to back up because I still remember my father giving me like a smirk and him ducking underneath 
and crawling. That was a big, you know, he was still one of those guys that stayed low. And I hear him barking out orders, and I got the backup, and I don't know that much. Once again, I keep saying, you know, but I know I'm 24 years old, and I'm, I know I'm tougher than my father. So I took my face piece off moving in with the hand line. I really did. I took my face. I was like, he's got his face piece. I'll take that off. And I was sucking wind, man. I had to, then I was scrambling to put my face piece back on, I swear to God. And I was like, wow. And I, like, I saw him in a different light. I'm like, that guy was just talking and stuff I couldn't even see, and I was gagging, you know? I still could kind of remember, yeah, it's down here on the left, make a right, it's over here. I, I mean, you know, those are the early years with him, you know, when he was still a captain. Yeah, good stuff. As young men, Joe and Chuck had separately identified one of the many ingredients behind their father's success as a company commander, his ability to breed cohesion and esprit de corps among his men. This attribute was on display when Captain Downey served as the plank owner of Squad Company 1 in December 1977, and a few years later, when he moved the rescue from Carlton Avenue in Fort Greene to a more advantageous location in Crown Heights. Both mission-oriented leadership endeavors required that a group of seasoned firefighters and fire officers inhabit previously unoccupied and somewhat decrepit firehouses. It's funny because I, I still I think of the squad, December 3rd, 1977, all these little numbers that stick out. That was the day they opened the squad. You know, the squad history is interesting, and I tell a lot of people the squad history because a lot of people don't get it. You know, like that community wanted to wanted a firehouse after 269 engine closed. And I only know the story because my father told me it. And the administration didn't want to give it to that community. And then finally they relented. They said, all right, we're going to put someone in. We're going to make them run around the city. So my father was tasked with that. He got promoted in July of 77. And by December, four or five months later, he was opening up a company. The tough part was they gave him half guys that were issues, and he got to pick his other half. But... My father and his obviously military background was able to clean house pretty quickly. But that's, uh, yeah, 19th, December 3rd, 1977. I remember painting that place and cleaning that place, not, you know, being 12 years old and like, hey, come on, we got to go paint the, paint the fire. Okay, you're going to, I did, you know, me and my siblings, we painted and cleaned that firehouse. You know, can you imagine that nowadays? I can't. <laughs> Moving to Bergen Street, it's the way he was. He just somehow grabbed that building that was falling down pretty much that needed a lot of work. And uh, looking at it now, there was a lot of things that I learned from him as being a leader and bringing people together. Like that was part of bringing a company together is moving there and working together to build that firehouse together. I knew those guys well, all of those guys. They were such a great group. I looked up to many of those. You know, I felt like they were an all-star team, the people that he brought in and surrounded himself with. And I, I try to use that during my career now is uh, bringing good people around you. My dad was good, but he also had that, that circle of really good people that made him even better, you know, as he moved on. And uh, they, I guess they were all stars, that group. I respected all of them. Um, I looked up to them. As the captain of Rescue Company 2, Captain Downey personally selected the officers and men who served in the company. In August of 1987, Four of Captain Downey's Rescue 2 firefighters were promoted to lieutenant on the same day. Downey then selected five firefighters to transfer into the company in their place. Firefighter Tom Richardson was one of them. In Rescue 2, Richardson formed bonds with some of the most respected members on the job. It was August 11th, 1987 was my first tour there, if I remember correctly. But 
five of us went to rescue within a couple of weeks of each other. It was me, Timmy Higgins, Mike Esposito, Billy Lake, Kevin Dowdell. So I remember going there and I was totally intimidated. I'm coming up on seven years on the job, six and a half. You know, I spent four years in 227, two and a half in 102, of course, working with like just tremendous fire officers, you know. So I guess I didn't realize like I had some stuff up in my head, like I had some a little bit of experience, you know, but I was intimidated. I'm going to rescue two. Like, and I remember going there as a kid and I'm like, I'm working with Lee Ielpi, Richie Evers, John Vigiano, Ray Downey, Artie Connolly. I'm like, I was beside myself. Like I was a nervous wreck. And they went and uh, the guys, the younger guys, of course, took me under their wing, Mike Penner, P. Martin, uh, Terry Hatton. But Ray Downey, like if I had to describe the guy in two words, and we talk about this, this term all the time, command presence. You've heard the term. You probably hear it in the military a lot. But if I was to describe Ray Downey, that was Ray Downey, command presence in every facet of the job, from the fire floor to the office to everything that he did, I felt like that guy had command presence. And again, working with him in the firehouse when I first went there, I was in Vidge's groups at first, but then I wound up being kind of in his groups. I think Ray Down, I think he was like group 13. I wound up being in like group nine. So I was between him and Vigiano. But he didn't say much in the firehouse. You know what I mean? He kind of let the company run itself, but he was the captain. You knew he was the company commander. And, and just a, a short example, so I don't know how many companies you've been in where he ran the commissary, the captain. He ran the commissary. He collected the house tax. It was like his personal thing. He ran that company from A to Z. He just had that presence, you know, whether we came down in the kitchen for chow, whether we got on a rig to go out for drill, but oftentimes, most of the time, the drilling was done by the senior members, like particularly when he was working, like when you worked with Vidge, Vidge was often facilitating the drills. Audie Connolly was facilitating the drills, but when Downey worked, he kind of let the troops teach and do all the drilling and he was good at it. I was, like I said, you know, when I'm working with Ray Downey, I remember going to a couple of really good fires and uh, I was a hot mess. Like, you know, I was uh, nervous talking on the radio. I'm calling, like, I'm, I'm talking to Ray Downey on the radio, giving reports, like, right. And I always tried to remember, like, I, I got to get this right. Like, this is Ray Downey, like, right. It was just that, that environment, that atmosphere, that presence that he brought that made you want to make sure you did your job as best as you could. I don't think I was the greatest firefighter in the world, but I, I worked with some of the greatest firefighters and they taught me as much as they could. It just flowed. Anytime you went to a fire with Ray Downey, what I remember, and I'm a young kid now, so now I'm whatever, 27 years old. I was in the best shape of my life when I was in that company, the best shape of my life. And I was all in. When you went to a fire with Ray Downey, he had such, chiefs had such deep respect for him. When you went to a fire with game on, when Ray Downey went into a building, I can remember this many, many times, you go into a building and it is just total chaos, things are not going well. And literally, my recollection, I remember many times you're going in and you know, the stairs are crowded. He would start barking out orders and just like, not loudly, but, in his way with that command presence. Everybody knew him. 
and all of a sudden things would just kind of get done and the fire would go out. I mean, it was kind of eerie, like it was kind of weird. That was the way he was. He brought that presence to the fire floor, and then we'd come out of the building and he'd report back to the chief and we would take up and he thanks a lot, Ray, and we would go. And that was that. Man of a few words. He didn't talk on the radio a lot, but he demanded excellence. Like he demanded you to do your job. He was, in, in that way, he was very similar to the Vidge. You know, the Vidge had a very high bar. Vidge was a little more vocal about it, I think, than Ray Downey was. Ray Downey, he just did it by looking at you, like, right? If you screwed up, he would tell you. I never got yelled at by the guy, but there were guys, I saw him yell at guys. You know, one time I think I screwed up a report when I had the roof. And he mentioned it, you know, out in the street. But he had, he had a, a very, very high standard of operating. Men like Tom Richardson revered Captain Downey's command presence at fires, but it was Downey's commitment to his family that they admired even more. He was a total, true family man. Like, he made all of his kids stuff. As you know, the boys were all, like, I know Joe and, and Ray were like phenomenal wrestlers, you know, like champion wrestlers. He made everything. Chuck was an unbelievable football player, right? He, they were all athletes. And even his daughters, you know, I think they were athletic too. But he was a family man. He didn't miss much, you know, with his family. That was something I always admired. And I kind of said, you know, I'd like to aspire to be that as well. Like be a dad that can manage family and the job. Ray's boundless energy and love for his family was not lost on Rosalie either. I mean, he was just a workaholic and he also studied completely. He loved to read, but he always had time for us. No matter what, he was there when he had to be there. So he was just one of a kind. Captain Downey continued to select new members for Rescue 2 as firefighters were promoted or retired. The rescue firefighters commonly came from Brooklyn's busiest truck companies, such as Ladder 176, 108, and Ladder 123. Firefighters Danny Murphy and Bob LaRocco, better known as Rocky, were two of the firefighters who Downey brought over to Rescue 2 in the early 1990s. As Danny and Rocky recall memories of that time, Danny remembers one particular story of working with Captain Downey as the FDNY was transitioning from turnout gear to full bunker gear. So what they told me, I remember LB telling me, like, when you get your bunker gear, you're going to run out of gas fast. Like, so I didn't really, I'm 37, so I didn't really think anything of it. So we caught a job, and I remember it was on, it was on Howard and Chauncey, 233's first due. And I don't remember too much about the job, but I remember I ran out of gas. Like it was a really, real hot, really quick. It was a really hot summer. We day. were shopping for the meal on the, at the Big R on Atlantic, and everybody was there. So we all went to the fire right up, went up Rockaway, and it's one of those days where it's hotter after six o'clock. Like everything, <laughs> the streets radiating heat back. So it's a job, and I'm like, I'm out of gas fast. So I'm like, wow, I, I knew I was going to hit the wall but I didn't think I would hit it overnight. Like I worked the night before without bunker gear. So we get done with the job and I'm shot. And we're going back to the rig and I think Billy Lake was working. And he goes, he goes, hey, hurry up. He goes, 210 just gave it 1075. We got to do the job. I'm like, oh man. So I'm thinking, all right, well, 210's all the way to the other side of Brooklyn. I'm gonna cool off and stick my head out the hatch, have something to drink. But 210 was relocated to 233. The fire's on Howard 
and Jefferson at six blocks. Uh, 102 had their aerial in the window for and the fire. We, turn, we turned the corner. I'm saying, ah, maybe so, all hands, no special units. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that. It, 102's area looked like like sale day at Macy's. Like the, it, it was packed, just packed with people, so it's a legit job. But I'm shot when we get there. So again, I'm, I'm crawling because I can't walk. I'm like, I'm, I'm really that shot. So now we get back to the rig, and I remember I was so hot. I was like, my hands were shaking. I got the chills now from being like I'm cold, from uh, from being overheated. And it's me, me and you. We had the floor above. And uh, as we get in the rig, I'm holding my cup of water. My I'm saying my hands are shaking. Downey gets on the radio and goes, "Hey, floor above, get up here. We got to toss this apartment." <laughs> so I looked at Rock. I reached over. I, I go click. I turn my radio off. I says I ain't making it, and neither are you. It's just we're sticking. We're sticking together. Says, I can't. I can't physically walk up the stairs. So I remember down he comes down, and he steps over me, and he says to you, he "Goes hey, you know, uh, Bucko." He goes, when I say I want to toss this apartment, I don't expect to be throwing mattresses out the window by myself. He was. Uh, he was a guy you didn't want to you didn't want to be on the wrong side of him. Here's Rocky to better explain Downey's gung ho spirit and phenomenal instincts. I found out afterwards that they were at their fifth job of the night, and it was like maybe seven thirty in the morning, and I'm um, on the apparatus floor. Downey had gone upstairs, and I hear over the uh, Brooklyn radio, uh, loud one forty eight to Brooklyn, ten seventy five, box nine one eight, and like I'm. Um, Box 918, that's Schenectady and, and Bergen. <laughs> so I open up the front door, I, I look down the block, and it's a job. It's a, you know, a, a frame going. So with that, I, I stick my head back in quarters, and down he's running down the stairs in his sneakers. He goes, "What's?" I said, there, there's a job up the block. He goes, come on. So we, we grabbed our gear. We ran up the block. We got there. There was no one. 148 was there. There was no engine you know, to help stretch the line down. He goes, come on. We're going to the floor above. We don't have masks and tools. But we, you know, we did what we needed to do, this, that, the other thing. Eventually, an engine came, put some water on the fire. And uh, what happened was uh, now Rescue 2 was coming from the last job that they were at. And the guys get off the rig, but the fire at that point was uh, pretty much out. But Downey w w was that good, you know operating with no mask, or, or always aggressive, always making the right decisions. Uh, one other fast story that comes to mind about him, one night we ha had a fire in a, a ghetto area, and uh, it was one of those hot nights where the, the air is humid and it's hot, the air, and it's just holding down all, all the smoke, one of those smoky fires. And we got there, and apparently, you know, this ghetto truck company, no one bothered to take a mask in those days. So Downey goes, come on, we gotta, we got to search the apartment. So we're in the apartment above, and Downey tells me, he goes, I'm, I'm going to hit the front, you hit the rear. So like I, I throw my mask on, and I'm in the rear. Downey's calling me, how how you, how you make it out back there? And I would like take a breath off my mask, and I, I call out, yeah, Cap, uh, the, the rear room's good. I'm going to make my way toward you. And, and we're talking through this. And I, you know, however long it took to make a nice search of this apartment, it took a couple minutes. After the fire, we go, you know, Downey goes by the command post. I go by the rig. I change my mask, and Downey walks back with his mask, and he pops it in the mask bracket. So I walk over by the cab, and I go to pull it out, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to change your mask cylinder. He goes, oh, I didn't use my mask. <laughs> I'm like, come on. I said, it was really, really bad up there. I said, I have my mask on. I said, yeah, he's telling you, I, I didn't use my mask. So I kind of like pushed my way past him. I pulled the mask out of the bracket, and I looked at the cylinder gauge. And it was full. And I looked at Downey. He just like kind of gave me a half smile and shook his head. And I'm like, eh, this guy's the real yeah, deal. And, and anyway, we got a, a, a job 
somewhere in the 50s in the Borough Park section of Brooklyn, right off of 13th Avenue, it was a Queen Anne going. And uh, what happened was, yeah, we get reports of people trapped. We get there. Uh, Jerry O'Donnell from 147 is stumbling out on, on the porch. It was like one of those really bad things. So the chief is telling him, you know, I'm, I'm missing people here. And so down there, I remember he, he turned to Bruce Howard and Bond, you guys try and go up the aerial ladder. I said to the captain, I said, Cap, I'm, I'm going to try and get, get up through the inside. I'm going to head for the attic. And he said, all right. So uh, he divided up the guys. And as I'm heading up to the attic, I'm on the second floor and uh, the attic's on fire. There was an apartment up there and the door was open to the apartment and there was flame coming out of the doorway from the rear part of the building there. And what happened was a 250 engine had a uh, an uncharged line. Uh, they had it flaked out, and they're on the stairway going up to the attic. And the stairway going up to the attic was like maybe five stairs going up one way and then five stairs going up to this doorway. So I got to go past 250, and I got past 250, and their officer was there by the stairway, and he put his arm across, blocking my way. He goes, well, where are you going? I said, well, I, I got to make a search of the apartment. He goes, well, we, we don't have any water. I said, I, I, I know that. My captain wants me to make a search of the apartment. He goes, I'm not letting you go up there. So I just like pushed my way past him. And he goes, all right, go, go ahead, tough guy. Let's see what you can do. So I got, got up to the uh, top stair. I put my mask on and I crawled to the front room and I'm making a search. And, you know, anyone who's been there knows like, you know, when you're with other guys, you, you, you hear water. You know, it's, it's one thing. But when you're alone and now you hear the fire crackling over your head. So I, I did a good search of, of the first room. The back room was just hard for me to get to because of the fire. And I said, all right, let me get out of here. So I start crawling back to the, the stairway. And as I get to the doorway, Captain Downey is coming up the stairs. And he goes, can you give me a, a good good primary of, of the attic? I said, well, no, Cap. And he goes, well, get, get back, back in there. And I, I went back in. And then, of course, you know, he, he, he joined me. We did as good a search as we could. But the moral of the story is that I was more scared of Downey than I was of the fire. And after this occurred, there were times when I would tell the story you know, purposely in front of Downey, and Downey would always look at me with that half smile and shake his head, but he was one tough fireman. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, very, very incredible. Uh, one of those guys that had that uh, ability just to make all, all, all the right decisions. Of course, there are countless stories to choose from when speaking about Downey, but Rocky's next recollection speaks volumes about the captain's intensity and how members never wanted to disappoint him. Well, here, let me, let me tell the story because it came in, it was, it was a, a summer night. It was a, a weekend night tour and they lit up this row of stores on Flushing Avenue, somewhere off of Lewis, like west of, of Lewis or, or over there. Actually came in, it was like a second alarm on arrival there. So we get there and there's a whole bunch of stores going. I have the can, this fire building, you know, there's several lines going into several stores. So like I, I, I pick a store, I go in there and I'm, the lines advance and I'm right, right there with it. And I hear uh, rescue to uh, rescue can. I go, yeah, re rescue can on my handy talkie. He goes, uh, where, where are you? I said, I'm in the fire building. And he walks back at me, you're not in my fire building. <laughs> and I'm like, uh oh. So like, and I run out now, there's like, you know, lines in three, three or four stores. I'm trying to figure out where he is. So I don't know, in the heat of battle, smoke, I got fog of war, I lost him. <laughs> Who knows? But I, I, I did the right thing as far as, you know, my job, I thought. So I'm back by the rig with Galleon and we're uh, kneeling down next to the rig and we're changing our mass cylinders. Me and Galleon, we're kneeling down facing each other and we're talking. All of a sudden I see Galleon like look up kind of look at me, but a little past me, he gets up and runs away. And like, I'm like, 
gee, we're in the middle of a conversation. What happened? With that, he saw Captain Downey run around the rig looking for me. Captain Downey started yelling at me, you know, blah, blah, blah. Don't run ahead of me. You know, this, that, the other thing, which now, you know, that I eventually became an officer, I see how important it is. You want to, you know, have control of your guys and know exactly where they are. So after he was finished yelling at me, I'm basically, you know, all sweated up a leg on the floor. Like I, you know, <laughs> took a couple of knockout punches. And Galleon walks around the, the rig. He's smoking a cigarette at this point. He looks down at me with his eyes half closed. He goes to me, cuz. He goes, my father never yelled at me that much. <laughs> <laughs> that hard. <laughs> it's a true story. Even with his tough exterior, Captain Downey was admired by his men for his quiet professionalism and the fact that their captain was just a regular guy, a sign of respect for his humility. Him and Downey had a very funny relation. Mike Espo, an incredible, incredible fireman, and he had an incredible, incredible sense of humor. And uh, one day we're working the day tour in Bergen Street on Rescue 2, and the mail comes. I hear the mail coming through the slot out front. So I'm in the kitchen with, uh, with Mike Esposito and a couple other guys. So I walk in, I get the mail, and, uh, you know, I, I put it on the, the, the lazy spike, as we call it. It's the uh, lazy Susan in, in the middle of our uh, Re Rescue 2 table, which was a, a Con Edison spool with, you know, the, the patch routed into it. It's pr pretty cool. And, uh, and anyway, so uh, right on top of the stack of mail, there's a brown envelope, a little brown envelope, and it said, photos do not bend. And it's addressed to Captain Raymond Downey, you know, FDNY, Rescue 2, 1472 Bergen Street, the whole thing. And so like Mike Esposito's looking at it and he goes, oh, it's photos, do not bend. So like I go, yeah, Captain's coming in like an hour and a half, uh, it's for the captain. He goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to open it up. <laughs> I said, you, you, you can't open it up. I said, he, he's, it's addressed to him personally. It's not addressed to the company. Yeah, he says, but, you know, it, it, it's photos. We could be in these photos. We're never going to see these photos. So like I said, you can't do anything. It's addressed to the captain. With that, Mike goes over, he gets a tea kettle, and he puts it on, and he's boiling. So now he steams open the envelope. So there's a bunch of pictures in there, maybe about a dozen or 15 pictures. And we're looking at the pictures. And there was a a typed letter in there from some buff. And it says, you know, dear Captain Dowding, with most respect, I understand you're, you're writing a book, and, you know, perhaps you might want to use these pictures in your, your upcoming book. And it was signed by this particular guy, most respectfully. <laughs> so I look at the, the letter. Mike looks at the letter. And Mike goes, uh, Bobby, get me a pen. So I reach in the company journal. I, I hand him the pen. And he writes underneath. Mike seals up the envelope, puts it back. Captain comes in. And, uh, you know, throws, throws his keys uh, on the table there, and he takes the uh, photos upstairs, opens it. When he came downstairs, he, uh, he was in his uniform, but he had this funny look on his face. You could tell he was disturbed, and he never said anything to us, and we never said anything to him. And, oh, one other thing I left out, when he threw his keys on, on the table, after the captain went upstairs, Mike went out in the parking lot, and he comes back. I go, what'd you do? He goes, well, I went in the captain's car. I put on a rock station. I, I turned the volume all the way up, and then I put his windshield wipers on fast. So when he leaves in the morning, he'll know it was me. Danny's leadership extended beyond quarters in the fire ground. According to Danny Murphy, Downey played an influential role in establishing the FDNY Family Transport Foundation, which provides transportation to and from medical appointments for FDNY members and their families. Downey's effort in this was unknown by many until former FDNY captain John Vigiano shared this information before his passing in 2018. It kind of dawned on me that like a lot of the things that he did 
and the things about him like you never really knew nobody really even heard about i remember one of them was when when vich was really near the end we were in the hospital but he said to me he says do you know do you know who started ambulance uh the family transport i says oh why yeah i think it was uh patty concannon was one of the guys instrumental in, in that and he goes no it was downey he says when he had cancer the first time, Vich had cancer uh -huh. the first time, he says Downey hijacked ambulance four. Remember the old? Sure. He commandeered that, and then he had guys driving uh, driving Vich and uh -huh. his family back and back and forth to the, so that was really like the seed for the family transport, you know, helping a guy out that's, right. that's sick, helping his family, you know, there's the logistics of getting people into the city and into Sloan and parking and, you know, just getting, getting the guy's wife in is a monumental thing. All right, he, he had, the, a, had a big heart. His kindness and influence went family, beyond the fire. Family transport is, is just, it's it's grown into what it has. It's just, it's helped so many guys over the years. It says, but I never knew that, you know, and if I did, if it didn't mention that really, maybe about a week or so before he passed, it says I would have never heard that and nobody else would have right. ever heard it, you know. So a lot of things that he did, you know, we never really, really hear about. We spent a lot of that time when we were young, kind of <laughs> trying to stay, you know, stay out of his uh, his wrath, you know, if uh, things, <laughs> things things could happen. You know, he was strict. He was an old school. Oh, he yeah. really was. He was like your dad. Yeah, yeah. Like you that, didn't want to, definitely. like you said, you didn't want to disappoint him. You certainly didn't want to let him down. You know, and you would try to kind of kind of do your best. Yeah. But I know it was uh, when you look back. When guys say, yeah, you know, I was one of Downey's guys, it was kind of a little bit of a feather in your cap. Danny Murphy and Rocky, as well as Mike Esposito, Pete Martin, Timmy Higgins, Timmy Stackpole, and Kevin Dowdell, spent their formative years as Rescue 2 firefighters during Captain Downey's tenure. When they made the decision to study and become officers, they were promoted out of Rescue 2, generously sharing their experience with firefighters they led and developed proud of their time in rescue and appreciative for having been Captain Downey's men. Danny Murphy articulates the influence that leaders like Captain Downey had on his mindset and operational philosophy going forward. One of the things they told me when I got there, you know, you when you're younger and you you go into some fires, you know, you turn the corner sometimes and it's like like holy holy cow, you know. But I I would say that uh, one of the things they taught me is just like never let the situation overwhelm you. You know, and I think even if you're not overwhelmed by it, I, I don't I don't think anybody could really actively control it. You know, you maybe control yourself and say, you know, you didn't get overwhelmed. You know, you kept your wits about you and you tried to manage things the best you could. But, you know, just Downey, had, he just kind of had that confidence, you know, that you always try to kind of portray that confidence that if you were, if you, I mean, Anybody tells you, he says, if you, if you said you were never scared on this fire, on fire department, you, you're just crazy. He says, the stupid guys, the crazy guys are not scared. He says, the brave guys are scared, but they, they do it anyway. But I just, I did try to do that. I tried to convey that to the guys you worked with, like never let them see you shot if you're, if you're scared. But I think the most thing that I remembered was just that he had kind of like a calm demeanor about him. And I you try to emulate that. The, the guys that kind of go down in flames are the guys that try to imitate guys like Vidge. Vidge could pull over at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, we're going to cut up a car and drill on it. And if you didn't want to do it, you'd want to let him know you didn't want to do it because then he's he's thinking that you're a, you're a bag of rags and 
maybe you don't you don't really want to belong here but we had a guy I won't say who he was but he he would try to do that when he was covering in different places and he he went he went he went down in flames but he did have that the both of them actually they had that kind of that demeanor you know not a, not in a condescending way just in a confident way that you're going to present yourself as a resource to the incident commander and you're going to be able to accomplish whatever right he had that presence and he had the <clears> confidence in him because he had the rep not only did he have the reputation he could back it all up yeah you know the, Downey, the history of doing it and backing it up Downey had he had a presence that's uh you know yeah some a lot a lot of guys didn't have but he did that's if i look back and say yeah that's one thing you tried to you tried to do you tried to convey that you know but anybody that reported in thinking that you were downy you're going to go down downhill <laughs> but if you if you kind of some of the traits that he had just that that confidence and that you know that demeanor that calm demeanor is something that you kind of can bring bring the temperature down of any situation. Yeah. If you we just talked about this actually getting off the train today about just trying to trying to stay calm or at least looking right be looking able, be able like, to think and make decisions even like though you know sure. Danny and Rocky are just two of more than 25 of Captain Downey's rescue firefighters who were promoted to lieutenant many of whom would return to the FDNY's special operations command as company officers. A few members of the company who studied under Downey's tutelage would become chief officers and would even ascend to the FDNY's most senior rank, that of chief of department. Tom Richardson served in Rescue 2 in the late 1980s and spent the final years of his career serving as the FDNY's chief of training, chief of operations, and chief of department. Richardson also served as one of Downey's squad company commanders prior to becoming a chief, an experience that he believes prepared him well for his future endeavors. He said, listen, I need a guy for like two years to get this thing up and running, and uh, I really could use your help. And he kind of sold me on it, and that, that all worked out, man. It was one of, the, one of the highlights of my career. You know, as a firefighter, certainly working in rescue, you know, being able to gain that experience and prepare me to be an officer was unbelievable. But this experience, I would say, really prepared me to be a chief. And I'll be honest, looking back, it actually prepared me to be a staff chief. That opportunity. He gave me that opportunity to lead when I went to training, was running the fire academy. And then when I became the chief, all of those things, you know, the raid down, I call them silent lessons. I would call them silent lessons, honestly. It was all observation. And the fact that he gave you the opportunity, I think all the other captains, if you talk to them, would tell you the same thing. But moving forward, as I became a staff chief, I think that was a key part of my career, prepared me to be a, a manager. Because now you, you're managing, right? You're managing people, you're managing things as a, as a staff chief, fire academy. Then in operations, obviously, was, a, in my opinion, you know, operations is the job. That is the fire department, strategically, operationally, tactically. That is the fire department. So like chief of department is, in my opinion, it's kind of a figurehead position. I mean, your, your job is to work with the fire commissioner uh, and others on the staff, the civilian staff. But in operations, uh, you, uh, you really get to uh, manage the job, you know, manage the, 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 the actual job the, the, on the street, day-to-day -day -day operation of the fire department. And... Ray Downey had a large influence on, on my ability to do that. He uh, just, again, 
that those silent lessons, watching a guy like that be able to deal with people. And he managed some big projects in the job, not only special operations and the development of the squads. He managed the bunker gear program when we got the bunker gear in 1995. He was the guy. They gave it to him to run. He was running SOC. And he built quite, I'll call it an empire, special operations. You know, the rescue school, right? Has man operations just kind of flourished under his leadership. And so I watched all of that. And I said, this is, this is how you lead. A lot of people may not have liked his style because he could be a little firm, but I just, just watching and observing. That's how I learned from him among others, of course, but he had a profound impact on my ability to, I hope I was successful as a staff chief. I was only a staff chief for less than five years, but I hope that I, I was able to take all those lessons and, and put them into practice, but watching him work with people, and that's what it's all about, like working with people, all of those jobs, those staff jobs. It's all about people, man. Like you, you got to get along with people. You don't always and you're not always going to agree, but at least you can sit and chat and, and, and talk about it and work through the problem sets. And he, he gave me uh, a lot of tools. I think he gave me a lot of tools and I probably didn't even realize it. Like, you know, as I was going through it, but he did, you know, I look back you know, working as a firefighter and then as an officer and then as a chief officer. But I always remembered his, uh, his demeanor and his, his impact, you know, really was profound. The firefighters who were promoted out of the Bergen Street Firehouse were not the only protégés who carried forward Captain Downey's philosophy as fire officers. Sons Joe and Chuck would do the same. Captain Downey actively ensured that his sons on the job were molded by veteran officers and firefighters during their formative years in the FDNY. He then actively encouraged both sons to study for promotions. Joe would return the encouragement. It was kind of ironic. He said, you need to study as soon as you get on a job. You know, stay in the books. Make yourself better by studying, but eventually get promoted. We were students, not of the fire department, but decent students, college educated. So the studying, you know, we put our time in right off the bat. Uh, my test was postponed a couple of years, so instead of giving it, I think it was like three years, they pushed it back. So I didn't get an opportunity to take it until I had seven years on a job. But he definitely pushed us to study. And the kind of ironic thing was I pushed him to study after I got promoted and I was studying, I think, for captain. And he was a captain of two for like 14 years, 13, 14 years at the time. And I said, listen, you probably should study. You know, you could be a great chief. He's like, nah, I don't think I'm good here. And I'm like, here's my books. So I actually gave him the books. I had some tapes that we had made up and stuff, and uh, he didn't need much with his seniority and stuff, but he just had to pass the test, which he did. Uh, he was a smart guy, and he passed the test, and uh, he would have never studied if we didn't push him. At the time, I was studying. I think Chuck started to study, too, at the time. But yeah, he, he wasn't going to study, but I think it was a great move, and then obviously he came to Special Operations and began the command, building the command to where it is. Um, he still would have been the captain of two for another, probably for 20 years. At that time, he could still do the job. He didn't study to get at it because he couldn't do the job at his age there at Rescue 2. And that's not an easy to, thing to do at Rescue 2, to stay at that level. Until now, we've given attention to Ray Downey as the attentive family man and legendary FDNY firefighter and officer who led by example and upheld the highest standards. In the next episode in this series, we'll take a more intimate look at his role as a strategic visionary 
who advanced rescue training and operations at the FDNY and beyond, his deep commitment to his Catholic faith, his incredible response to the attacks on 9-11, and his enduring legacy. Coming up. I think his words were, it's not, if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. Ray used his religion to get through difficult times in the fire department. Yeah, I think I adopted some of his styles about taking care of the guys. Like, he was a tough disciplinarian, but he always took care of it. You know, like, it's like, it's almost like they're my kids. I think he had the foresight that, listen, our special units got to figure out something else to do, too. Fire duty's down. What else are we going to do? And have a more standardized approach to technical rescue. There's a standard he set for all of us that you really need to know your people. It can't just be that they're just numbers on, on a board. No, you have to know the person. You kind of know a little bit about them. Subject matter expert, sounding board, decision maker, whatever you would, but he was the guy. I think his faith and his honesty and his loyalty was like, and his humbleness was all together. You know what I mean? If you don't have faith, you don't have any of that. The unique part of mine is that I interacted with Chief Downey twice. He was in command doing his job with a clear understanding of what had happened. We weren't fooled in that, in that sense. It just was an overwhelming situation for anyone. At that point, we knew he was missing with the rest of them. We didn't know how many people were missing, but we knew he was gone. I mean, there was one of us there almost every single day, which was a lot. Never, never said what he really did. It was unbelievable. You know, even when he passed, we found a folder in his room that said, that a boy. And every time he did something good, he put it in this folder, which I didn't know or the kids didn't know, you know? And as time went on, we found out so many stories about him. He was unbelievable.